Hello, my friend. Thank you for joining me today. This message that you're about to hear is, I titled it Shades of Jesus. You're never actually going to hear that phrase in this sermon. And the the reason is because I didn't title this because this was a conversation sermon. I sat down with my friends in Chapin, South Carolina on a Sunday evening. We sat in a group and we talked about Jesus and I brought a word um, that was originally supposed to start in Hebrews 10. But as you will learn, it didn't start in Hebrews 10. It started in at random. And then as we talked, it expanded. We ended up in Hebrews 10, where the shadow of the law is discussed. That led me to, and, and because our conversation brought us around to Jesus as the centerpiece of what God looked like, We started to talk about how all those other things were just shadows of Jesus. That leads me to the title, Shades of Jesus. I I did some editing so that there's only one moment in this sermon where someone without a microphone speaks, and you can hear them. It doesn't last long, and I answer or use it sort of as a springboard into the next thought. And I think you can tell by the way we answer what's happening. The, The individual talked about is was Jesus what God looked like, and of course that leads us into a great uh, discussion. This what we this group meets on Sunday evenings each week and watches a video that we record for them. Those are the videos, by the way, that end up in the additional content spot at paulwhiteministries.com. If you've never checked that out, I encourage you to do that. But we sat down, we had a great conversation. I thought you would enjoy it, and it's our sermon presentation for you this week. Here is Shades of Jesus. I do have a, a, a word I'd like to share with you guys. Um, I, I think that words come out in a way like fruit on the tree. They're, the the gene, the DNA for that piece of fruit is inside that seed. When that apple seed goes into the ground to grow into an apple tree, it takes years to get to the first apple. But that first apple was in that seed in, in a way. Um, the word works that way in that what went into your heart at your conversion, 10 years old, 20 years old, 40 years old, some of that isn't showing up until now. That fruit might take 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Some of what you have heard in the last year is only just now soaking, just now starting to blossom and bud out. Um, the word works that way in me as a minister in that Things will happen to drop something in my spirit through conversation, encounters, going into a church to preach, talking to a pastor, reading an email, something I hear someone who responds to a podcast. And it, some, sometimes it just drops in there and you just file it away. You don't even think about it. And then it comes back a month later, two months later, six, you know, whatever. Sometimes it drops in and you can't not think about it. And so the word I want to share tonight is not anything... Honestly, it's not anything you haven't heard or thought of before. I find myself sometimes circling back to some of that with you guys. Um, But I think that's because we've grown. There's a level of maturity that's, you know, the baseline level of your understanding of the words higher in this room than it was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. So it's not about trying to come in here and be clever. It's not like, well, I'm going to go in there and really expand minds and blow somebody's mind, give them something deep. Sometimes you go back to some of those basics and you watch to see what the Holy Spirit would say to you now that you might not have known you were capable of two years ago, three years ago. 
that's how I study the word. I find myself circling back to some of the same themes and saying, wow, I didn't know that the Lord had that to say to me there. I thought I'd sort of wrung all of the, the water out of that towel that was in there. And you find that you haven't. So I, part of this, uh, I'm in Hebrews 10. If you have a Bible and you want to read along, I, I want to read, I want to start with one verse. And it's from the, the epistle to the Hebrews. And I, I'll start before we read by saying that it, like a seed in the ground, this word happened for two reasons. There was sort of two drops of water that hit the seed. One was that I did a, a little essay at the end of the year on my podcast where I talked about an old chapter. I pulled out an old chapter I'd written for a book I never finished about five years ago. And the chapter that I, and I used it as my essay for, I think for one of the essays at the end of the year on the podcast. And it was an old chapter I was writing and I'd titled Romancing the Shadow. And Romancing the Shadow was a sermon idea I had a few years ago of believers that go back to the forms of the law as a way of getting close to God like they keep the Jewish feast days or they blow the shofar horn in their worship service or they're ordering a prayer shawl off Amazon so they can wear it while they pray because there's a belief that if they're wearing their prayer shawl, their prayers will be more effective. I'm not condemning shofar horns or prayer shawls or feast days, but I do think we need to be cautious of the mentality that doing those things are somehow an elevated form of worship like if you have a prayer shawl on, your prayers are more powerful. If you blow the shofar horn, your worship's more effective. If you celebrate the Passover in a Jewish way, then you'll have more revelations of what God's doing. I think we need to be cautious against that because it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how our promises are fulfilled. Our promises are not fulfilled through Jewish clothing, feast days, worship ceremonies, Torah recitations, all those things are what they are, but they're not Jesus. And we are disciples of Christ, and all of our promises are fulfilled in Christ. And so my prayer life, your prayer life, is in Christ. Your worship is in Christ. Your life is in Christ. Paul said, my life is hid with Christ in God. And so I, I can't help but believe, based on the way Paul writes the, and based on the way the book of Hebrews is laid out, that our early church, and I'm talking that first generation that either walked with Jesus or was converted directly by Jesus like Paul, would have been overtly offended at the idea that if you could go back and be more Jewish, you'd somehow be a better version of Christian. It was so opposite to the Jesus Paul was presenting which was not to say that he had something against Judaism. It's not some anti-Semite rant. But to say, you can't go back to what you came from and call it favor if you've come in through Christ. Christ is your favor. Christ is your substance. 
that's been on my mind then now for weeks because I, I pulled that old chapter. We did an essay on romance in the shadow, that idea that to go back to those things is to romance the shadow, but not the substance. It's to take the shadow of an object and fall in love with it rather than to fall in love with the object. And my illustration is, of course, why would you, if, if you are away from your spouse or your your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever, and you, you have a picture of them, you carry the picture with you to remind you of them. But when you have them in the room, you don't kiss the picture. You kiss the person. Kissing the picture doesn't make any sense if the person's in the room. And we have the person of Jesus in our hearts. So to kiss the other things, in a way, is to kiss the picture. And it's an insult to the person. I mean, can you imagine? Well, I'm going to have, I don't want to be intimate with you. I've got this picture of you. I'd rather spend time with this picture. You go, I don't think you understand how this thing works. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't work. And so, yeah, the reason we called that romancing the shadow is because that's a shadow of the real thing. A picture is a shadow, in effect. It's not the real person. It's an image of the person. But it's not the very image of the person. As, it's, to use good biblical language, it's not the express image of the person. What Hebrews says, Jesus is the express image of the Father. Meaning, Jesus is what God looks like. And as you've heard me say before, Jesus is what God always looked like. Jesus is what God looks like. Jesus is what God will always look like. I don't know if you caught it, but I said three different things there. And they're all yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is what God looked like back here in the Old Testament. Jesus is what God looks like in your reality. And Jesus is what God will look like when you're back to the dust of the earth. Um, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what do you say look like? Clearly not talking about physical attributes, are we? No, not in the not in the physical realm. We we don't we don't see God in the realm of having a physical body as we do. But when we say Jesus is what God looked like, we are saying that the God of the Old Testament, that so many of us so often think is a different God than the God that Jesus shows. Jesus comes along to show us that if you think that was a different God, the problem is with you, not with God. God was not different. It was the viewpoint that we had of God that needs to change, and it needs to look more like Jesus. Um, So Jesus is not coming along, and this is an important distinction. Jesus does not come along to show us that God is changing. Like, hey, God used to do this, but no more. Now that I've come... That's not the way we're going to do it anymore. No, that would have God being changing. That's a, that's a God that's changed his mind, that suddenly goes, you know, that didn't work out. So um, since that didn't work, let's try something else. Now I'll become a man, and we'll try it another way. And if that be the case, then James, you can kick James's little letter out of the New Testament where he says, God is immutable. He, not, he does not change. He is without shadow of turning. In other words, uh, God isn't. And God's not who you think he is. He, he could change. If he could change then, why wouldn't he change now? This is the assurance that you have in Jesus. That if, if Jesus was the representation of a changing God, God's changing how he deals with you. If that's the case, then what makes you think God's not going to change now? 
But God suddenly goes, you know what, though? I have not met anybody that sins as bad as this crew. Forget it. I'm not, I'm not going to treat them that way anymore. And so Jesus actually, by showing us I'm what the Father always looked like, is showing you that your perceptions of God have often been wrong, but God has been the same God. And if you go, well, what does God look like then? That's Jesus saying to his disciples, if you see me, you've seen the Father. So what does God look like? He looks like Jesus. Well, let, me, let me give you an example of one of the great double downs in the scripture. John, the apostle, writes the gospel of John. And at the first chapter in the beginning uh, was a word, words with God, word was God, and the word, the light was the life of men. And then as that chapter unfolds, John goes, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And he uses the same word there as he used at the beginning. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the very essence, the very meaning of God. And the and that was with God, and that was God. That became flesh. So as reader, you're reading John 1, and you know what John's doing. God became flesh, and you know that that must be Jesus. And here's the double down. Here's where John decides that he is, he's going to put his life on the line. We don't catch this when we read it because we're so used to it. But when John then says, no man has ever seen God and lived but we have begotten, we have beheld him full of grace and truth. And what I mean by that's doubling down is John going, okay, I admit you can't see God. He goes, but I saw him and his name was Jesus. And, and the reason that's so, that's risky is because it's John declaring Jesus to be God. You better be right in that culture, in that religion. And that's why they had to put behind them the religion they were coming out of and say, in that faith, you can't see God. In this faith, we believe we have seen God. And he's Jesus. And he looks like Jesus and he loves like Jesus and he moves like Jesus. And then that allows you, see, Jesus becomes the fulcrum by which you judge all the other scriptures. Jesus is the fulcrum by which when you go back into this Old Testament and you see a passage and you say, hmm, well, I don't know. I don't don't know about God right there. That's okay. Say that. Feel that way. You're human. That's your emotional response to what you're reading on the page. Don't stop there. Because if you stop there, what you might do is go, well, the Bible's full of this. It's got this vindictive God here in the Old Testament. I don't want to serve that kind of God. This is a contradictory book. God's a psycho. I've heard, this is the argument people got. God's schizophrenic. He's really mad back here, and then he's really happy up here. I don't know if I can serve that God. And I would say to you, I don't think you should serve that God. I mean, why would you serve a God that changed his mind all the time? So instead of stopping there and giving up, throwing your Bible on the coffee table and saying, I'm done, Look at that scripture through Jesus and say, does this look like Jesus? And if the answer is no, this doesn't look like Jesus, then it's time to move on to another story. And if you say, yeah, but what do we do with that story? You say, I don't care what you do with that story. You can trust that story. You can distrust that story. You can look at that story as fiction. You can look at that story as myth. You can look at that story as an allegory. You can look at that story as historically inaccurate. You can look at that story as having been told by someone that misunderstood God. The truth is you're not a disciple of that story or that writer. You are a disciple of Jesus. And if that story doesn't look like Jesus, then that story doesn't look like God. But we're not alone. We're not odd in this. We, we're in good company. Um, 
remember, let's start with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest, Jesus is the greatest prophet among, born among men. And Jesus is because he prophesied of me. And as like a point we made this morning, the reason that John the Baptist is such a great prophet is that prophets don't read the future, prophets read the present. John the Baptist read the room. He read the room better than any prophet ever before him. And what he read was, here we are. I can feel it. He's on the planet. I mean, think about this. It's John the Baptist going, this is it. He goes out to the River Jordan. He goes, kingdom's on the way. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I'm telling you, any day now he's going to walk up and I'm not going to be worthy to reach down and undo his shoes. And John keeps preaching that. You talk about laying your whole ministry on the line. I mean, that's it. And then here he comes. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and his fans in his hand, thoroughly purged floor. If anybody gets Jesus, it's John. I mean, right? He gets it. This is the one, man. And you're not a few chapters in to John. And John the Baptist sends a group of disciples to Jesus and says, hey, our leader wants to know if you're really the one or should we look for someone else? It's one of the most fascinating turns that we see in the Gospels. John the Baptist, absolutely confident that he's found the one. And then in a few months, completely unsure if he's found the one. Go ask Jesus if he's the one or do we look for someone else? And for a long time, I was so curious, how does John get to that place? Well, first of all, it gives me peace because if I have my faith kind of goes like this, roller coasters, I'm in good company. John the Baptist was the best prophet, the the greatest prophet born among women, and his faith apparently rode a roller coaster. And so if my faith rides a roller coaster, I'm in good company. It's a pretty good roller coaster to ride, you know, the John the Baptist Express. And so I, I, I feel okay. But then I started to wrestle out, why was it that John didn't, that he went from confidence to a lack of confidence? And what strikes me is that John is declaring he's coming, the Messiah's coming. And in John's mind, that's about like it is every, to everyone else. When he gets here, this place is in trouble, man. You guys just get ready. His fan is in his hand. He's going to burn the trash out of this world. And then Jesus comes and John goes, there he is. And John's right. There he is. And Jesus comes up out of the water. A dove comes down and rests on him. Not a lion, not an eagle, not a fire from heaven, a gentle dove and rests on him. And Jesus doesn't go to the halls of Rome. He goes down into the wilderness and he disappears for five weeks. And when he comes out, he goes to a wedding reception And he turns water to wine. A couple weeks later, he ends up, rumor has it, he drifted down into Samaria and held a little meeting with a bunch of godless Samaritans where he spent a week teaching. And word gets back to John and goes, this ain't what we're looking for. Maybe I missed it. Now, why? Because he's disappointed in the Messiah he got, but it don't look like the God that he's created in his mind that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he says, go ask him if he's the one. In John 14, and we've shared this with you many times, in John 14, when the disciples, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth of life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father and we'll be happy. In fact, Philip even says there, if you, you, you carefully read it, he goes, 
all of your talk is fine, but what we really want is you to show us the Father. It's kind of Philip going, enough with the teaching. And we know that's what he says because when Jesus finally explains himself, the disciples go, there, now you're speaking plain. In other words, they got so frustrated with the cryptic messages. Fisherman goes down, casts a net in the water, pulls out the fish. Uh, at the end of the age, he's going to separate the good from the And they're going, God, what? we're so tired of the lessons, and we're tired of the parables, and we're tired of the codes, and we're tired of this mass link. Just do it already. They were like us. Just do it already, God. Show them who you are. And Philip goes, all the talking's fine. Just show us the Father. And Jesus says, this is great. This is what a statement. Philip, how long would I need to be here before you realize that if you see me, you've seen the Father? You know what? Never, I've, I never bring this up when I preach this. Why do, I wonder if how long Jesus waited for an answer. I've, I've never thought about that. Because Jesus said, Philip, how long? Well, imagine if we're sitting in this circle and one of us asked Jesus that. And he goes, Mark, well, let me ask you, Mark, how long? Do I need to be here before you realize if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? How long would you... And what was Philip's answer? I mean, imagine the spot Philip was put on. And I know it was a rhetorical question, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe there was a big 10-minute gap where Jesus just sat there going, I don't know, think about it. What, what are you wanting me to do? You guys go meet amongst yourselves and come back and tell me what you want that would prove to you that I, that I am the Father. And the room's quiet. Because Jesus knows very well what they want him to do. It's the thing that one chapter earlier in John 13, they thought he was going to do. In John 13, and Jesus, knowing that all things had been delivered into his hand, stood up. If all things have been delivered into the king's hand and he stands up, somebody's in trouble. In John 13, all things have been delivered into his hand and he stood up. And he put a towel around his waist and he knelt in front of his disciples and he began to wash their feet. And Peter is offended like we would be. And Peter goes, you're not going to wash my feet. Stop it. Lowest servant in the house washes feet. This is covered in dirt and mud and dung and that's disgusting. And you're a king. We followed you because you're a king, not because you're the guy that washes feet. And Jesus says, that's the way things go in my kingdom. We wash feet. And so that's what Philip, that's why one chapter later, Philip goes, stop with the stuff. Just show us the father. And Jesus says, remember that moment when I got down on my knees and washed feet? That's how your dad is. That's how your dad's always been. And if you didn't know that, it's because your lenses were wrong about dad. That's the father. And that's what I mean by the the fulcrum of the Bible is Jesus. The, The very center pole of everything that this is trying to say is Jesus. And that's why at Emmaus, Jesus says to those disciples, On the road to Emmaus, the Bible says he opened the scriptures and showed them the things concerning himself. He didn't show them the scriptures not concerning himself. That text doesn't say he opened the Old Testament and showed them himself in every verse. No. It says he opened it up and showed them the ones concerning him, which tells me they don't all concern him. And so Jesus skipped them. (laughs) And so I'm not telling you to cut and paste your Bible, but I'm telling you to look for Jesus standing in every spot. 
And in reality, when you do, you're looking at the shadow. Or in the Old Testament, you're looking at the shadow to find the substance that is Jesus. That's my verse. Look at Hebrews 10.1. We've, we've ran, honestly, in a direction I didn't anticipate, but I love everything about that, okay? That's why I don't put too much stock in what I think we're going to do very often, <laughs> particularly on these meetings and these sit down circles. I go, I've got a verse. We'll see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. It's my, you know, look at Hebrews 10, one for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Now, I want to just break this down. I don't want to overdo this. I'm not, I'm not going to slam you with Greek. But I want, to, I want to show you a couple of things. The law is a shadow of things to come. That's a word we've been using a lot tonight. It's merely a shadow. Shadows are not real. They are just the, they are the image of something that is real. They are just the, they are what falls. They're the picture. They're the copy to the original. They are, at best... They are the land that's on the other side of the object. That's the shadow. The light is shining on the real thing to produce a shadow. No one falls in love with shadows. Shadows let you know something's there. If you see the shadow, you know the real person standing between you and the light. And so the law is a shadow of something better. Now, what's the something better? Of course, we'll get to that. But it's not the very image of the things. And it can never, with, notice the word with, this is in conjunction. It cannot, with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So the law and the sacrifice is working together. Let's put those two. The law can't work with the sacrifice. One needs the other. Why have sacrifices if you don't have law? If you have law, you're going to need sacrifices. Why? Because if you have law and people break them, they're going to need a sacrifice. Why would you need a sacrifice if you didn't have a law? Because if you didn't have a law, you wouldn't be needing to sacrifice anything. So you can't have one without the other. Okay, so the law and the sacrifices coincide. They work together, but they're weak in that they don't make people that approach perfect. The very last part of that sentence is, this is the stunner about this text. The law is a shadow of something better, and it's bedfellow sacrifices. The two of them do the best they can. And they don't work. That's the shocker about this verse. That, what do you mean they don't work? Well, they don't make people perfect. Okay, now this is what's interesting about this, is if you were to try to imagine, what's the point of the law? And the easy answer is the law, you know, if you do the law, you'd be a good person. I mean, if you do the Ten Commandments, you're a good person. Or the law is supposed to make people moral. Right? Even, even in our, our, our laws, city, state, federal, it's to keep, maybe it's to make people moral or to keep them from acting immoral. Um, so Hebrews goes, well, didn't work. <laughs> Plain and simple, didn't work. The law coupled with the sacrifice, it didn't make people perfect. And why is that? Well, let me, let me let's play devil's advocate for a second, all right? If the law couldn't make people perfect, why did, why did God give it? Maybe God gave it because he didn't know that it wouldn't work. 
Ah, see, you didn't like that one. Yeah, you didn't like that one. You're too slick for that one. Okay, so God knows then that it won't work, so why do you give it? So does that make it even worse? Because at least at first when I said God gave it and didn't know, you go, oh, that's impossible. Okay, so you admit God knew it wouldn't work. So why would God give it if he knew it wouldn't work? Now, what we've done sort of in the grace message is we've said, well, God did that on purpose so that it would break you, so that you would know you couldn't keep it, so that you would turn to Jesus who would keep it for you. But in all of that, that's assuming that the reason the law existed at all was to create moral people. And so Jesus would come along, show you that you were immoral. He would be moral for all of you immoral people, and he would fulfill the law by being moral. But the reality is is that Jesus didn't think fulfilling the law was being moral. Because he was asked one time, a guy walked up to him point blank and said, what's the biggest law? What's the greatest law? And Jesus goes, well, the whole thing rides and falls on love the Lord and love your neighbor. He says, on these two things hang the rest of the Bible. He says, the law and the prophets. But that's Jesus' way of going. Everything that's written down hangs on love God, love your neighbor. In that, Jesus said, you would fulfill the law. And Jesus came to do what? Fulfill the law. How did Jesus fulfill the law? By doing what his father told him to do and by loving his neighbor. Paul would write that to the Romans and say, the fulfillment of the law, no matter what it is, and he even quotes half the Ten Commandments, and he goes, but whatever the law is, it's all summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. He goes, anyone who loves his neighbor fulfills the law which tells me that the law was not given to make perfect people. The law was given to teach you how to love your neighbor. Well, didn't the people ask for the law, though? To some extent. To some extent, yes. But in reality, what the people asked for at Sinai is, if you'll recall, Mm -hmm. Moses comes down from Sinai when when Israel gets out of Egypt, and he tells Israel, God has desired to make you a nation of priests. And... Israel says to Moses, we are scared of God. You go talk for us. And here's the kicker there. Priests minister to God from the people. Prophets minister to people from God. So it's the priest's job to approach God for you. If you go to your priest, your priest goes to God. When God says to Israel, I want a nation of priests, what he's saying is, I want all of you to feel free to come talk to me. And when Moses tells them that, their response is, we're scared of God. You talk to God. And Moses goes back and tells that to God. And God gives the Ten Commandments and goes, all right, fine. They don't want to. Why would God do that? If he was creating a nation of priests, they would have the ability to talk to God. If you have the ability to talk to God, you have the ability to listen to God. If you have the ability to listen to God, you have the ability to listen to God on how to treat each other. But if you're not going to talk to God and you're not going to listen to God, you're going to need it written in stone. When the book of Revelation comes along, Revelation opens with a revelation. Shocker, right? That's in the title. And the revelation is John sees Jesus. And Jesus, John says, we have been made unto this Jesus a kingdom of priests. And Revelation we finally get to where Exodus was trying to take us. A 
a group of people who get to talk to God. The law was a shadow of the substance. The substance is Jesus, but the reality is, is the substance is all of us get to be the priest of our own life to talk to God. And talking is a two-way street, which means we get to hear from God, which means I do not get told by a written code how to treat you. I'm told by the Holy Spirit how to treat you. And in that, I'm, I am responsible for my neighbor. Not independent of them, but they are still a part of who I am. And if the law and the sacrifices could not make the people that, that came in perfect, and so as we don't going to read it all, but you go down on, in, on into chapter 10, it will tell you that Christ then died once for all. The end game for God to me was never perfection. I, don't, I, I think this is what causes a lot of ministers' problems, is that we get into the pulpit and we look out at our congregations and we think that way, the reason God put us there is to fix people. I'm not here to fix you. We are not fixers of men. We are fishers of men. <laughs> we just try to point you to Jesus. I'm not here to fix you. I love you if you don't get fixed. See, our job, the problem is if we think it's our job to fix people, we start to fall in love with what we fix. And we struggle with what we can't fix. And with what we struggle with, we start to dislike and disdain, and we don't want to be around. It isn't my job to fix you. It isn't your job to fix your neighbor. It's not your job to fix your kids. It's not your job to fix your spouse. It's not your job to fix your boss or your employees or whatever. We are we're on a journey. We have the ability to hear from the Holy Spirit, to talk to God. And we are not constricted by the structures of the law or moralism. I, I want to land where I was going to start as well. I told you there was two drops of water that touched this seed in my heart, brought this word out. And I told you what one was, that little essay that I rehashed. The other one was a conversation I had with a pastor in the last couple of weeks. And he began to tell me some of the things that he's come into grace and some of the things that he's become free in. And I rejoiced with him that he's become free. And the Holy Spirit put on my heart to say to him, this was actually months ago that we had this conversation, but I found out the results of it the last couple of weeks. To say to him that even though we are not under the law, it does not mean that we are lawless. And I said it almost as a throwaway line at the time. I just wanted him to know that, hey, you've been freed from the law. It doesn't determine your righteousness, but it doesn't mean you're lawless because you've been, you have been, Paul says you've been taken out of the law of sin and death and placed into the law of Christ, which means that you are still subservient to something legally, and it's called Jesus. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit are working in tandem, which means you are not lawless. You are underneath the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. You do not navigate the world as if you have no instructor. You navigate the world with a different instructor. It's not the laws of Sinai. It's the law written on your heart. It's the Holy Spirit saying, don't say that. Don't go there. Don't do that. And you can ignore it at your own peril. You can. You can ignore the Holy Ghost all day long and go, I'm going to say whatever I want. And he'll go, all right, go ahead and... Uh, this is going to be hell. Oh, you don't believe in hell? Well, go ahead and say what I told you not to say, because here it comes. 
And I'm not talking about when you die. I'm talking about in the next 10 seconds and maybe for the next 10 years. And I'm going to walk into hell with you because that's what I do. You drag me into hell all the time. I think it's what the Holy Spirit says to a lot of us. You've dragged me, you've dragged me into hell more times than I'd like to be there. But if you go, I go. So let's go. But the truth is, don't say that. Don't go there. Don't do that. Listen, watch, pay attention, hold my hand. I'll show you where to put your foot. You can ignore me anytime you want. <laughs> all things are lawful, but not all things will build you up. All things are lawful, but some things will tear your neighbor down. So be careful how you say it. Be careful how you live it. So, and I shared that with him. I said, you're, you're not under the law, but you're not lawless. And it, we, we had a conversation the last couple of weeks. He said, that smacked me between the eyes. He said, that, that was absolutely transformative for my ministry and for my church. He said, because I realized that I, had, I was preaching that we're not free from the law, but I was living, starting to live lawlessly and starting to see the results in our church and in our community. And he said, that helped me. So that stayed in me the last couple of weeks to where I, I wanted to land on that verse tonight with you because couple that with that essay I'd found that was tucked away in my word file from five years ago. And those two things sort of came together and went, it's a good spot to land with Chapin is to say, because, and it's not new information for you. Everybody in this room, everybody in this circle knows that, but it's something to go back over again is to say, there's nothing that can, there's nothing I can go back to that makes me more righteous than I am in Christ. All that other stuff's a shadow. But to act like I am, because I've been freed from the law, that I have no law, that I have no instructor, is to, is to be independent from the priesthood that he's given me. And as a priest, I am responsible to someone. And you can start looking in your life going, who's the someone? Part of it's me. Part of it is her. Part of it is my kids. Part of it is you in this circle for me. And you have your circle too, but part of it is you that, that I have to think about what I say or what I do because I'm not alone and you do too. Your circle's different than mine. Your circle might be really small. It might be one person, two people, three people. Your circle might be thousands of people. It's probably way larger than you realize. I th- what I have found is that you're... Those who are watching you, who are gleaning from you, are there's more of them than you know. And that's not meant to make you walk through life scared. You don't have to be scared. You have the Holy Spirit. You can listen to the Holy Spirit, and there's going to be times that if you'll pay attention, the Holy Spirit will put the brakes on. You might not even know why he's putting the brakes on, and you'll feel it. The Holy Spirit will say, not today. And you'll go, well, I'm, I'm, and if you're not careful, you'll argue with the Holy Ghost. Well, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. And once again, I've, had, I've, I've been in those moments where the Spirit says, sure, sure you're free, son, but I'm, I'm sparing you. And you can ignore me if you want. It's to your peril. And I can tell you guys, I've plowed through that red light before. I've barreled through it with the Holy Spirit saying, don't do this, don't do this. And you get T-boned in the intersection and you don't realize what's happened until you find yourself flipped over in the other ditch. And I'm not talking about in a literal car. I'm talking about in some realm of your own life, your own, your church, your, your experience, your business, your marriage, whatever. And the Holy Spirit's laying right there in that wrecked car with you going, all right, I'm not going to leave you. You're not getting rid of me. This is the Holy Spirit. You're not getting rid of me. No man's going to pluck you out of my, my hand. It's you and me all the way. But... Get ready, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, in reality, that's yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Mm-hmm. 
He's been leading me beside still waters. He's been leading me to green grass. He's been leading me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Read the, the 23rd Psalm. That's all lead me, lead me, lead me. And then, yea, though I walk through the valley of it. Yea, though I walk is the dark turn in that, in that Psalm. You can feel it. Even though sometimes I walk into the valley of the shadow of death. Pause, pause, pause. You're with me. It's like a shock. It's like the writer of the Psalms goes, even in the place that you don't belong, you're there. This shouldn't be your house. David got it. David writes in one of his songs, he goes, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. What a phrase. How many times have you made your bed in hell? More times than we want to admit. Guess who sleeps right there with you? You lay down, he lays down. He goes, all right, here we are. Thank God for that. He never leaves us or forsakes us. But, but it can be avoided. And I don't want to make it sound like every time you go through the valley of the shadow of death, it could have been avoided because sometimes it can't. I mean, I hope you realize sometimes you go into the wilderness because you have to. Even Jesus, come here. God says, come here, let's go into the wilderness. And who, who wants to go into a wilderness? Fast for 40 days. Jesus walks in. So I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens to us is because we did something stupid. I don't want to make that insinuation at all. But, but I think we all know what I'm talking about. But there are times we just we barrel through where we could have stopped. There's a lot of scriptures I could read and a lot of verses I could share. But um, we went in a couple directions I didn't expect. But I, but I think it's, it's beautiful because it's the conversation that allows the, where the Holy Spirit allows us to. It's like water rolling down a hill. If you've ever watched water. Pour, pour water down a little hill and you can't, it's almost impossible to predict where it's going to go. If it's never flown down that hill before, it's impossible to tell if it's going to go left, right. When it gets to that rock, you don't know if it's going to go over it, around it, or pool up for a while and get bigger and bigger. Such as this, those of us born of the Spirit. I like to watch how the Holy Spirit takes conversation with the Scripture. It's like water rolling down a hill. And because you're here, it went differently. That's the thing. If you hadn't been here, it would have went. It might have went left. But because you're here, because you, even if you didn't say anything, because you pulled something, you 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 tugged in the spirit a little bit. It it might have went like that. And I'm fascinated by that. I've been doing this for a long time. And the greatest things you can do is is not the fantastic bombastic. It's it's listen in that communication and watch where the water flows down that hill. You don't know what it's going to do when it gets to the bottom. So that's a fun journey for me. Um, that's all I wanted to share. And, and then a lot of things I didn't expect, but um, you, you guys are precious. We love you so much. And I'm, we're so grateful for you. And I am so grateful for you, the listener. We didn't have a traditional ending on that sermon, so I didn't close that portion right there with prayer. So I thought I would jump back in here now and just tell you how appreciative I am of you, our listening audience here at Paul White Ministries. If you're interested in more of our sermon material or our daily podcast, it's all available at paulwhiteministries.com. Anywhere you get your podcast, you can type in Paul White Ministries and you will find it. This is an audio-only sermon, of course, but we do post a lot of videos, and you can access that page at YouTube, PWM. We love you. We appreciate you. We're praying for you, believing God for good things. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us, info at paulwhiteministries.com. If you can support our ministry in any way, we appreciate it. If you can pray for us, we truly covet your prayers. Just know that we are seeking the Father for what we can present fresh bread-wise 
to each and every one of you. Until next time, God bless.